Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, April 28th. We've got quite a show for you today. Uh, we will talk to Amy Kaufman, the former wife of sports writer and broadcaster Jonah Carey. She's making her way out, doing some interviews, advocating for other women to come forward and speak about domestic violence and abuse. So proud that she decided to chat with us. Uh, so proud that she's doing what she's doing. Uh, and it's great to call myself a friend of hers now. You'll hear this interview in its entirety on the podcast today. Uh, we'll also dive into a couple other issues, including conservative MP Michael Barrett joining us, talking about a story we broke on the show yesterday about a filmmaker whose 11 turned 12-year-old daughter is in a hard quarantine right now in the GTA. 14 days, she can't leave her house, can't go out into the backyard, can't go to the front yard, can't go check the mail, can't do any of that. And Health Canada is checking up on her. What year are we in? She's vaccinated but got COVID in January of the Omicron variety and then took this trip but needs to be double vaccinated to go back and live her life now. But the doctor said, you've got one shot, you've got natural immunity from the Omicron and not to get a second vaccine immediately. So they're in a little bit of a situation here. And Michael Barrett, the shadow health minister um, for the opposition party, comments on that. Lots coming up. It's Toronto Today and it starts now. Let me start here, and I want to update in a few minutes the story we talked uh, a ton about on yesterday's show, and we certainly talked about it afterward. It, it grew some legs uh, as the show ended. I saw yesterday a story about the uh, negligence of the U.K. government over care homes, long-term care, in 2020. In fact, so much so that there was a legal challenge, and it's been deemed now by a high court justice that the department uh, at the highest level of the United Kingdom acted unlawfully. They sent hospital patients uh, without COVID tests back into the care home. And thousands of them caught the virus and they died. And we did something, I suppose, similar. If anything, we, we did that a few times and then we reversed course and we thought we're not going to get people out of long-term care and send them to hospital where they could have been tested, they could have been sheltered, they could have been more protected. They were more in a communal atmosphere and they died. Um, I've heard so many people say, well, this is the worst moment of the pandemic. I saw that a bunch of times. So I did, Omicron, oh, I've, it's going to be awful. It's, I can't believe it. And it wasn't great. None of this has been great. Thanks for that reminder. But no, um, watching military personnel, men and women, carry body bags out of long-term care where we put the people that raised us and raised our parents that's the low point of the pandemic. End stop infinitum. Whatever you want to put on the back end of a sentence, exclamation point. There's no emoji that works. It was awful. It was terrible. I'll never get those images out of my head. And many of those people won't either. Many of the people I'm talking to right now remember getting a phone call or being really worried about a long-term care process. And for context, my father-in-law is in long-term care. We, um, we didn't um, have him in a long-term care home until October. So that unbelievably devastating first wave, you know, the Iron Ring, the Marilee Fullertons, I don't even want to think about it. It makes me furious, and you can probably tell. But I see these stats yesterday about over 85s in the province from the Toronto Star. Census came out yesterday. Census data that's helpful for Ontario and for Canada. And over 85s are one of the fastest growing cohorts in Canada. Hey, it's great that we're living longer. I mean, it is. We all would like to live probably as long as possible. Although I saw a 119-year-old 
person died uh, and they were the oldest living person. And now they're not. Um, that's obvious. But I'm like, I don't that might be a bit too much. That's a that's a bridge too far. I don't want to turn 115 and look around and think this is this is my life right now. But over 85. Yeah, I'd like to get to 85. We all have that number in mind that we think we could get to and we'd like to get to. And we all want our parents to get to when we think about this. So um, it's great that we're living longer. It's never been a better era, I suppose, to live longer. There's more to do. There's better medicine. Things can take uh, things can take care of you. But uh, but we got a big big problem because where do those people live? Do they live at home? Our healthcare system was just hammered by COVID nineteen. Long term care has been a mess. A mess. Okay, because my grandmother was in it as well in the mid nineties. My mom's mom was, and now my wife's father is. Um, and who's to say any of us won't be there, right? There's a lot of randomness and a lot of things that we just can't control as we get older. So big provinces, as I read this from the star, provinces like Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, which have large urban centers, highest per, per, uh, proportion of people 85 and older, cities will have to make major changes to adapt to the changing needs of the large demographic. But I'm thinking to myself, the modern city just doesn't seem that it can accommodate an 85-year-old. It's wonderful it, because you'd think, I can be in a, an assisted living community. I can, But I, what I picture is people more out in the country, more out almost on a ranch living with 12 people. I do wonder, that's going to be expensive, but can government help us get there? We had Nathan Stahl on the show yesterday. He's running for office as a member of the Ontario Liberal Party. He wants a, a seat as an MPP in Queen's Park. But he made the point on a couple different fronts. Long-term care, first of all, how they're going to buy out the private long-term care homes. That's something we didn't hear from the NDP earlier this week. And that sure doesn't. I don't think that's something we hear at 4 o'clock today. We'll have live coverage all day, of course, on 640 Toronto in the provincial budget. Here's what he told me different ages of homes and each of those homes has a different license uh, length of time depending on the age of the state of that home and so for some of those homes their licenses come up for renewal in 2023 and we will not renew the license of of for-profit homes after that time then of course there are other homes who have signed on to longer uh, term contracts and those are the ones that are going to need to be bought out and that costing will be laid out in full in our, in our fully costed platform, which we will see after, you know, in, in, in the coming uh, days. Uh, and, and we have fully committed, as I said, to a fully committed uh, to a fully costed platform. I think it's a major election issue. I think it's something that the we're going to see how the Ontario PCs address this later today, because there's a lot of bugaboos. OK, they haven't fixed the autism program. I know that they've done a really poor job with that. Um, long-term care, that was a major nightmare. There's a reason Mary Lee Fullerton's not the minister of long-term care anymore. There's a reason that in some circles she was deemed the monster of long-term care. That's not a very nice thing to say, but if you feel it and you're out there in the public eye, people were calling her that, like important people were calling her that. Um, so there's a lot of issues there. Stahl also said something I found really intriguing, and that's the concept of making the home and giving tax credits for the home to become more safe for seniors to continue living to a certain point. You know, what I talk about uh, bringing long-term care home, so really promoting aging in place. I think, you know, if you look at uh, Doug Ford's plan, and even if you look at the NDP who are committed to building you know, 50,000 new beds, we really want to take advantage of beds that already exist, which are in people's homes. So we are going to increase home care for 400,000 seniors a year in Ontario with 10% annual increases in funding. 
We also know that by supporting people, uh, family members who care for them with, with a caregiver tax credit, we can, we can help support caregivers in providing the daily work that they're already doing. And also, uh, we've, we've decided to give seniors a home safety tax credit so that they can make the necessary adaptations to their home to age in place for as long as possible. That one seems fairly obvious. Ramps for wheelchairs, potential for different closets that are more accessible for seniors. Obviously, there's. I, I'm talking, I know, to a bunch of people right now, many of them are friends of mine that say, um, I've got one one parent taking care of another parent. If something happens to parent A, parent B can't live on their own. They wouldn't be able to pay the bills. They might not be able to drive themselves. But with with that kind of tax credit, making and outfitting homes to keep people in as long as possible, you've got something there. Now, there will always come a time, right? There always come a time, and it, it always seems to come too soon. And there's not too many people that say, well, I went too early putting someone in long-term care. Usually you hear people say, I, I went too late. Someone became incontinent. Someone was wandering around the street. Someone may even have gotten violent. All those are issues, obviously, that you, you, know, you hope to avoid all of them. But like, like, let's not live in a panacea here. Of course, a lot of these things happen. So you could still have a purpose, still go to your familiar chair and watch television while someone is there taking care of you certain amount of hours a day and they know their house and they know their condo. That's obviously better. And you give a simple tax credit for some home improvements and updates. You're stimulating the economy and you're keeping people in even six months longer, even a year longer. Look, everybody knows when their clock's ticking or they should. Reality ends up being reality at a certain point in time. But I love the concept of aging in place. And we haven't done a very good job helping those people right now. Let me shift back to a story we covered yesterday. And that has to do, obviously, with a man named Paul Kemp, his daughter, uh, went to Dominican Republic with the family. They have a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, and at the time of the trip, an 11-year-old. And that's what's critical here. So uh, Paul reached out to our show and said, I want to talk about this. My daughter's in quarantine, like a hard quarantine right now. Why is that? Well, she's vaccinated, got sick with Omicron in January. The whole family did. They smoothly recovered. and uh, But she turned 12 on the trip. So she gets back. She's not fully vaccinated. And the excuse from obviously Paul Kemp, the explanation rather is, yeah, doctors told us not to get somebody vaccinated fresh off of Omicron. And many doctors and uh, and and specialists will indeed tell you that. Now, do we have maniacs out there, some of whom work in public health, some of whom are pharmacists saying, get your shot. Here's your shot. Get a shot no matter what. Here, take another shot, a shot, a shot, a shot. Well, yes, that's great. You might want to encourage seniors to get a second booster. You might want to encourage people like me who have only one shot or two shots to get three. I have three. But but what you can't do is force feed vaccines into 12 and 13-year-olds. I don't think 13-year-olds should be having three shots coming right off of an Omicron infection. Kemp told us yesterday on the show that's the biggest reason his daughter didn't get the second vaccine. I did not get her the second vaccine because, one, she had had the first vaccine, got sick within a month of that, and I was told by my doctor do not give her another vaccine for a while because she'll have some sort of national response to this. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so we, we go away. She leaves as an 11 year old comes back as a 12 year old. And now I have the quarantine cops calling me. Yeah. The CDC yesterday in the United States, and I'd love to see these numbers in Canada documented that as of February 22nd, 
February 22nd, 73.5% of U.S. kids have had COVID-19. And you might think that seems like a high number. That counts kids that have had no effect whatsoever. That's if you tested every kid regularly and they would pop positive but have no symptoms whatsoever. I can't tell you how many households I know where a, one kid got it, had a, had a you know cough for a couple of days. Another kid that he really didn't isolate from or she didn't isolate from had absolutely nothing. This is happening. Now Paul Kemp says he's got quarantine cops all over him calling every day, making sure the 12-year-old is staying not just in the house, not just near the property, but in her room. We go away. She leaves as an 11-year-old, comes back as a 12-year-old. And now I have the quarantine cops calling me, making sure that I'm providing her air and water and that she's in her room and that she's not allowed to leave the house. She's stuck in her room by herself. Uh, very upset about this right now. And it's just horrible. There's no ombudsman to talk to about it. So someone from public health reached out to the show. Our producer, Sheba Siddiqui, uh, contacted public health and Tammy Jarbo wrote back this. Good morning. Specifically, youth age 12 to 17, unvaccinated and partially vaccinated youth 12 to 17 years of age must complete the 14-day quarantine and all testing requirements for pre-entry arrival and day eight tests, even when they're accompanied by travelers who qualifies a fully vaccinated travel traveler, blah, blah, blah. You may be required to wear a mask. Okay, so you're just telling me the rules, but you're not telling me why the rules are effective. You're not telling me why the rules might or might not be outdated. And you're not telling me that there's any wiggle room for a scenario like this. And you're not even playing into the factor of natural or acquired immunity, which a ton, millions of kids across North America and Europe have. It's a big problem. I want to reset before we get our next guest on our story from yesterday about Paul Kemp, award-winning filmmaker, made this brilliant documentary about Nike, Alberto Salazar, um, track and field athletes. It was really amazing. You can see it on CBC Gem. He told us about a trip he took to the Dominican Republic. And uh, and he said, I need to tell this story. And he was on Global News last night as a result. His daughter had one vaccine, got in December, right? We only opened it up to 5 to 11s around December, opened up uh, the vaccine portal. She got her one shot, gets sick with Omicron in January. Yeah, a lot of people did, uh, regardless of restrictions, mandates, etc. So doesn't get the second vaccine because her doctor says don't get don't get a second vaccine. You're fresh off um, uh, a first vaccine. So they take a trip and they book a trip and go to Dominican Republic. She comes back, turns 12 on the trip. But now because of the need to be double vaccinated, we all remember that in the fall. We were having kids play indoor sports. She's under a hard quarantine. No one else in the family is. She's a vaccinated child. She uh, sees her 17 and 15 year old siblings go to school every day, be out there working part time. I was talking to Paul about that yesterday on the show. Here's Paul explaining the scenario. I did not get her the second vaccine because one, she had had the first vaccine, got sick within a month of that. And I was told by my doctor, do not give her another vaccine for a while because she'll have some sort of national response to this. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so we, we go away. She leaves as an 11 year old, comes back as a 12 year old. And now I have the quarantine cops calling me. Yeah, and that's a factor right there. Uh, I want to bring on Michael Barrett, uh, who's a conservative MP and shadow minister for health and vice chair of health uh, committee. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for coming on the show, and we appreciate the time. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Greg. Well, we reached out to you about this story, and and I'm thinking it, it's one thing if situations fall through the cracks. It's one thing if if bureaucracy says, oh, we hadn't thought of that. But then let's pivot that. Let's adjust. Like we we reached out to Health Canada. We reached out to the liberal government and we just got, well, well, this is the rule. But the rules have to have some I think it has to have some ebb and flow to it after 26 months. 
Right. We're at a point now where we need to be in a place where we're learning to, or have frankly have learned to live with, uh, with COVID-19. And, and so uh, we're, we need to be able to learn to live with this. And so that means, as you said, uh, the ebb and flow. But recognizing natural immunity is important. In this case, uh, obviously presents you know, uh, an opportunity for there to be some, uh, some, some discretion that's employed. But, but these mandates that we have in place here in Canada right now, we often find that when tested against the science, um, don't seem to measure up to what our peer countries are doing. And this case is, is very clear. We also have a situation here in the province of Ontario where people are, are, many people have been infected, um, but aren't able to get a, a PCR test that would then um, give them that that pass in terms mm-hmm. of uh, in terms of travel. So um, the the political science needs to catch up to uh, the medical science, and in this case, you know, obviously the family did the right thing, and they they did what they thought was best for um, for, for them, and uh, and the young lady had a had a first shot. Uh, you know, based on those decisions in the fall, and then based on doctor's advice held off on the second, my goodness, you couldn't get any more arbitrary than the decision to quarantine this young lady. Yeah, this this is not um, this is not a family that is has you know uh, shunned the vaccine. This is not a family that has said none of us are get nothing like this. And and when I hear people say, "Well, we've come so far with travel," in a way, I've only been on one flight in in early February. Needed a PCR test on the way back. No problem. Wear the mask on the flight. No problem there. And we still do those things. But I I what I hear too much from people is, "Well, look where look how far we've come." And I'm like, "Yes, but is something right or something wrong in in the balance of of right now?" And and it's not right for this family. Well, that's absolutely right. And and look, when you balance this out with with reason, I think it, it a reasonable person would say, okay, um, you know, we're going to give you a PCR test on return, uh, and we'd like you to we'd like you to um, self isolate uh, until that PCR test has tested uh, negative. I, I think that a reasonable person would say, in light of all of those restrictions that that would be okay. But my understanding is that she's tested negative. And so mm-hmm. now, now this is, this is, this is arbitrary. Um, this is not based on, uh, on medical science. And so, you know, it's time that they caught up and we know in Ontario, the chief medical officer of health has, uh, has pronounced on, uh, on these things already and has largely lifted, uh, almost all of the, uh, all of the, the public restrictions because those vaccine mandates that they put in place, they've run their course. We, we've seen the plateau, uh, the, the vaccination numbers, um, plateau. And that was the objective that they had when they put it in place was to encourage vaccination. So, uh, so now we're at a point where uh, we're, we're well behind our allies. Um, we're well behind uh, the, the broader medical community. And, um, you know, and this, uh, this young person is missing weeks out of, uh, out of an academic year after two years of many, many days and weeks uh, of disruption uh, and hardship, particularly for students. So um, my goodness, my heart, my heart goes out to them. Uh, but I continue to to advocate on behalf of all Canadians that uh, to to uh, um, the Public Health Agency of Canada and to the minister that um, look, it's time to it's time to catch up to the science. Um, take a look at what the provinces across this country are doing. Take a look at what other G seven nations are doing, and uh, and and let's make sure we're not having any undue hardship on Canadians who've done so much hard work over the last two years by following the rules, getting vaccinated, staying home, et cetera, et cetera. Michael Barrett is our guest, uh, MP for Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands, and Rideau Lakes, and Shadow Health Minister on uh, 640 Toronto and Toronto Today. 
and you make a really good point about about you know natural immunity, acquired immunity, whatever people want to call it. When I, I just feel Omicron came and just changed so many rules of the game. We were fortunate. I mean, thank goodness it was a less severe variant. That's patently obvious now from the data involved in the study of that variant, but incredibly transmissible. And whereas I would have advocated for um, you know a, an element of of mandates for kids to play sport in the fall or to to go to a bar to go to a Blue Jays game, I, I it was only meant to be a short period of time it raises vaccination rates which makes which in august made all of us safe and it also i think it created consumer confidence and confidence for businesses that were reopening i just think we're we're in a much different era now eight nine months later yeah absolutely and and there was absolutely um you know there was a case to be made and uh, and they implemented those restrictions you know you've got to you've got to uh, walk before you run and I think that we did that, but now we're seeing, you know, the, the federal government say, oh, we're still not ready. Uh, we're still not ready to take those training wheels off yet. And, and frankly, uh, that's, that's not the spirit in which uh, Canadians followed all the rules because, because we were told, and we were told here in Ontario, that, um, that if we did all of these things, we would get that normalcy back. And, um, and you know, I, again, it would be one thing if, if, uh, a traveler was asymptomatic but tested positive, um, and they were, you know, and they were vaccinated, and 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 the public health agency of Canada said, "Oh, you need to quarantine." Um, but we, we're talking about someone who who is uh, testing negative; they, they are not infected. Um, they have a shot. They have naturally acquired immunity, and uh, you know, I just I don't think that uh, first of all that it's balanced based on uh, on science because there is no risk. Uh, to the family members and to her, mm-hmm. or to her peers at school, uh, and further, um, you know, it, it, it's not going to support uh, that that type of confidence that you spoke of with respect. To, well, if I follow the rules, well, you know what, I am going to get my booster, or you know, I, I'm going to keep wearing a mask. Well, kind of. Well, what's the point? The government, you know, if I decide to do what you know the the, the tourism industry has been asking us support people who work in that sector and travel. Um, there's, there's going to be a much bigger price to pay than the than the airline ticket. They might uh, they yeah. might quarantine me without reason. Yeah, and and I, you know we're trying to get people back and and establish their confidence, decide for themselves how to judge their own risk. This is there, of course the risk isn't over. Of course this is an endemic virus. We all have to be conscious of and, and aware of. But I worry. I'm, I'm hearing it already from listeners. They hear this this concept and it's like, well, I won't take that trip. I don't want the same thing happening to me. And right. it's just it it becomes this domino effect where where next thing you know it it it's got an impact on where we go and what we do. And we need to get our economy back going. It's not like that i i hear people criticize well you can't put the economy the economy is people it's businesses it's lives it's right. leisure you're if you're a young dad you know you want to take your kid your kids places all over the place you haven't been able to the last two years yeah absolutely and the other the other thing is and, and though there are absolutely um uh, great benefits for our economy for people when they uh when they travel whether domestically or in the preparations mm-hmm. uh for their trips internationally um what's the message that it sends that when someone um, who has uh, taken precautions, been vaccinated, and acquired nat- uh, natural immunity, um, and people are considering traveling to Canada. They say, "Yikes! I don't know if I want to go there. If I followed all the rules and mm-hmm. I test negative, they might quarantine me in my hotel for the duration of my very expensive trip to Canada." You know what? Let's wait another year. Let's spend our money somewhere else. That's yeah. that's that's not right. When when the science is telling us in this case. Look, there, there's there's no risk, and uh, uh, we need to reinforce uh, that when people follow the rules, uh, when there's no risk to public health, um, my goodness, that 
we've got to catch up two years later. Conservative MP Michael Barrett, our guest. Thanks for making time for our audience today, Michael. I greatly appreciate it, and I hope we get to chat again soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Take care. Amy Kaufman lives in Montreal. She was married uh, to sports writer, broadcaster Jonah Carey. Jonah wrote a big best-selling book, I think all through North America, about the Montreal Expos and sort of their rise. I was a bit Expo obsessed when I was a kid. I love those late 70s teams, right? Think of the iconic names, right? Gary Carter, Steve Rogers, Andre Dawson, the Crow, Warren Cromartie. You got Tim Raines, Hall of Famer, just went in a few years ago. And Jonah was a gregarious, popular well-known broadcaster, Um, but he was also a grotesque abuser, and a court found him guilty of that, and a judge sentenced him to 21 months in prison a couple months ago. Well, Amy started speaking about what she went through, the hell on earth that it was, and spent some time with me yesterday talking about it. She's done a couple of these. Anna Maria Tremonti, she sat down with uh, from CBC, who brilliantly and bravely told her own story of four decades uh, old of uh, of abuse. And uh, Amy got out a lot quicker than that, but the story's different for every single woman. So I'll warn you, there are some... Uh, some graphic nature to these, uh, you know, these discussions. We're going to play some of it before the 830 news update, some of it after. But I started by asking Amy about how she researched this while she was going through the abuse and how she was looking online for solutions and answers. And they were tough to find. And I had a lot of trouble finding sort of survivor stories of people who were openly discussing having been through it. Um, and then this past February, Anna Maria Tremonti released her podcast where she talks about her lived experience. And I sort of thought to myself, like, that would have been really inspirational to me while going through it. Not that the onus is on survivors to provide their stories uh, for others, but it really made a big difference. And I sort of thought to myself, like, I wonder what difference it would make if I could talk about what I went through um, and I'm in a position where I'm able to do it because of the career I have, I'm not a foreign war correspondent um, Mm -hmm. or the CFO of a bank or whatever it is that would make these things harder. And it really would. And um, also Jonah's position made it so that there was a platform of interest on social media and things like that um, of a segment of the population that isn't forced to hear about this enough Despite the, you know, Will Cordero's and Aroldis Chapman's, this is still not a conversation that goes on mm. enough in the sports world. Um, so I decided that I would try to use this platform for to speak out. And it has caused a lot of other survivors to reach out and people to reach out for help, uh, which has made it a lot easier to do. Um, the time, yeah, it's certainly flown by, but then I also realized that as the time flies by, so does his sentence. I can only think of how empowering that is. And I know, I know that isn't about, you know, strengthening you in a way it, it, it probably can be, but the, the bottom line is that you're thinking one person reaches out to me, one person hears their story, which is untold so far in the story that I'm telling it's happening to them in real time right now but they're hearing me tell it. And I can't imagine what that does. I mean, the, the smallest thing, you know, the smallest act of kindness or understanding or empathy in, in any context, whether it's, you know, a, a goof like me on the radio or it's somebody that does something nice for somebody in public, but you're really like, you're taking that to the nth degree that that must be so rewarding to be able to speak. Like you're not, you're not doing it for nothing. You're helping somebody else in their moment. 
I mean, it's sort of an extension of the work that I do every day um, with Women Aware, the organization that I work for and what everybody else at the organization does as well by sharing their lived experience and sharing their resources and everything they've been through to help other people. So it's something that had been normalized in my life that this is, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about these things and the shame is on the perpetrator um, and not the survivor. So I would say that as liberating as this has been getting into this field of work and getting into advocacy and stuff, which happened a long, a while before I went public with, with being Joan and Carrie's ex-wife was the most empowering. And that's Mm -hmm. why I sort of am hoping that this allows certain people to tell their stories as well and to realize just how similar all of our stories are. Amy Kaufman is kind enough to join us on Toronto today uh, on 640 Toronto. You, I, I read a quote in, it must have been your CBC interview. You wrote, people who have been in this situation know you go into survival mode. You live in five, 10 minute chunks of the day of just trying to keep things calm or defer or appease or placate. And it reminded me of, it's like, to me, the worst day of um, of, of parenting, you know, a, a baby or a toddler. And at the same time, you're safe. You're like that baby or toddler isn't going to strike you, isn't going to intimidate you, isn't going to curse you, isn't going to do all those things. Like it, it sounds, it just sounds harrowing and exhausting to, to just maintain that balance. And, and I know you were realizing it as it, as it goes, but you're hoping if I get enough of these chunks put together, maybe you can turn the situation around because I do, we talked about this before we started, you know, t- chatting about going on the air is people can unlearn things. They can change elements of their behavior, even as adults, especially as adults. Uh, they definitely can. The thing that people may not understand about this type of behavior is that it's not, it's a learned behavior. It's something that they have decided to do um, to assert control and power over somebody else. Again, this was not something that was going on outside of the home or with anyone else um, Mm. in his life. This wasn't something that was going on at work and things like that. This was a decision that he could make and a mask that he could, you know, take on and put off. And the, the way that these things go is that by the time the physical abuse starts, you've already lost so much of who you are um, Mm. and sort of given away parts of yourself bit by bit without realizing it um, by giving control over to this person, by accepting certain things you wouldn't necessarily have accepted before because they really love you because they're having such a difficult time. Um, And then you find yourself in this situation and you're the lobster in the pot of boiling water who didn't realize that the water was hot until it was too late. It's one thing to to make that first step and tell someone that you trust, someone, you know, that you love and, and loves you. And you say, this is happening in my life right now. I think we all, every one of our listeners could think of five, six, seven people that would say, I, I, I trust you. I believe anything you tell me. It's another thing, isn't it, to take that that level upwards. And, and you noted it earlier someone that had a, um, you know, a popular media presence, someone who would be a politician, someone who would be an athlete, an actor, a musician. It's a, it's an, it, it must've felt like a huge hurdle to climb over. And you said, of course, my best friends are going to believe me. I, 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 I've got evidence I can show them. I can, uh, but, but it's a, that, that's a massive step, isn't it? To go, I, I need everybody. I need everybody to understand that this isn't, well, you know, this, that's your side of things. This is happening to me. 
Yeah, certainly while I was in the relationship and seeing, you know, how much attention he was getting and how much everybody thought he was this amazing, gregarious advocate for feminists who was, you know, advocating for woke baseball culture and didn't want domestic abusers to play the game. Um, You know, things like calling Bobby Cox wife beater Bobby and things like that. And I just thought nobody would ever believe this. Uh, but as soon as it came out and went public, my initial reaction was to be horrified that everybody in Montreal was, you know, who knew who I had married and suddenly knew what I had been through. And the most terrifying and personal moments of your life were suddenly being shared on the internet was, I was horrified by it. And then people started to reach out. And like, I reached out last night to the first person who reached out to me on Twitter Um, to tell me that she had been in a similar situation and she was now happy and, you know, successful and enjoying her life and had gotten out of it. And it meant so much to me just hear from that one person. And then that just sort of snowballed into people reaching out to me, both to offer their support and women who had been through it and men who'd been through it and men whose dads had abused their moms and baseball writers and people who had nothing to do with baseball. And I suddenly felt that I was in a place of privilege, that his position was one in which he was cancelable and people were willing to believe me because they knew that there was evidence out there um, and because there were so many charges. But again, I don't know. I don't believe that if he had been a baseball player um, that we'd be having this conversation or that he would have uh, been suspended. So that's Amy Kaufman. We're going to um, stop there. We're going to pick it back up. I'm going to play you some audio from Jonah Carey. In the midst of all this abuse, he goes on a podcast, his own podcast, and talks about why there needs to be stiffer sentences for athletes guilty of domestic abuse. We shouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt. And we ask Amy about her wedding day morning. She knows she's getting abused. She knows she's marrying an abuser. And she didn't feel like she had any choice. And we're going to tell you, we're going to tell you who to call and who to email if you're being abused or if you suspect someone you know is. One in three women claim abuse at some point in their relationship. We're talking uh, about our talk with Amy Kaufman yesterday, the ex-wife of Jonah Carey, the sports writer who was sentenced, convicted of domestic abuse um, and sentenced to 21 months. And we'll get into that sentence and we'll get into the the wedding night. Here's Jonah Carey on the um, Jonah Carey podcast, uh, which doesn't exist and hopefully never will again, talking with uh, sports broadcaster Mina Kimes about domestic violence. Like he kind of leaves some damning, self-incriminating audio behind in the midst of abusing his wife. Um, he's talking about how great he is and how athletes need to be held to account when they're domestic abusers. Here it is. One thing which strikes me about the domestic violence issue as well in sports is that video seems to change everything, Yeah, which makes me almost sadder than anything. Why don't we just take the word of the person who said, this person did these horrible things to me? No, no, we have to have video evidence. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I guess I do know why, but it, it creates this weird uh, split where Tyreek Hill we didn't see it. He obviously got charged and everything happened, but it, he pleaded guilty. Yeah. He, he pleaded in guilty. Itself is, he pleaded guilty guys. Which, like there were people like you weren't there. I'm like, he pleaded guilty. He oh said, God. I am sorry for these things yeah. that I did. Um, and, and that's another question too. Contrition. Like, yeah, you know, it's very easy to be cynical and no matter what the person says, you're just like, yeah, but you beat the crap out of this person. Yeah. I don't care what you do. I don't care how many kumbayas or whatever. 
is forgiveness, is that something we should strive to have or should we not ever do that? Pathological to be on a podcast talking about that while you're in the midst of uh, abusing someone beyond pathological. Uh, Amy Kaufman and I talked further. I want to play this for you now. We chatted yesterday afternoon and I said, your wedding morning, that's supposed to be a pretty special time for women. That's a special time for men too. I remember it well. And those feelings of dread. And I said, what was that like getting married to someone abusing you in the process of you being pregnant? All that combining for Amy Kaufman. She lays it out in this answer. Oh, it was one of the absolute worst days of my life. I stayed up. I think pretty much the whole night, the night before crying and just not wanting to do this at all. And outwardly, it was a beautiful wedding. And I think everybody else had fun. Um, he seemed to enjoy himself. And I was beside myself and luckily had my best friend's three-year-old to keep me company. I spent the entire night with a three-year-old in my arms, avoiding everybody. Um, so there's and- no, there's no element that makes you think marriage will change. Like there's some, there's people that have, as you know, there's people that have babies and think the baby will change and make our relationship better. Another baby will change and make our relationship. There was no element with you waking up going, this is, this is a bond of matrimony. This will change our, our relationship. This will stop, or at the very least, it'll become a lot more minimal. You didn't think that. Well, I was pregnant as well, which is why the the wedding was happening. And mm-hmm. a lot of my thinking was that if I leave, and as he and he said many times, if I left, that he would get half custody, and that would not have been a safe situation for anyone. Um, so my goal was to try to either get him better um, or get him better enough that I could leave and feel safe to share custody with him. Uh, that certainly never happened. Um, and I'm lucky that I, I'm not in that position, but the wedding and everything else was just an extension of everything else I was going through where I just sort of walked Mm -hmm. blindly straight ahead because I had no choice and waking up that day or the day before there was no part of me that wanted to step on a landmine and cancel the wedding and risk being in grave danger and having my family members be in danger as well. And it's, incredible to think about and to say, because it's so far from my reality before him or after him, but it became a normal part of life to have to worry about these things. Amy Kaufman joining us on Toronto Today. If you, by the way, um, know of somebody who is suffering from domestic abuse or you're concerned someone is, uh, you can email info at womenaware.ca. Amy does great work for that organization, info at womenaware.ca. I wonder if if a lot of women listening can relate to this and go, well, I can't leave. I have a family. I can't leave. I've got economic reasons. Every situation is different, but I'm sure you'd listen to this and go, yeah, I probably felt the same way. And and yet the longer you stay, there's potential to to dig yourself in deeper to where to where you can never leave. You can never leave. My kids are teenagers. I'll leave when they get to university. You've already been through all those years. There's no getting those years back. There is never a good time to leave. It's something at work that I deal with a lot and trying Mm -hmm. to meet survivors where they're at and you can't force anyone to leave and giving people ultimatums will only alienate them and cause them to trauma bond with their abuser, if anything. Um, But it's often the case that people aren't ready to leave in time and that they Mm -hmm. end up being murdered before they're ready to leave. I was really lucky that my dog was there on the final day that he attacked me because I don't know that I would be here. Um, And there are many different reasons that make it hard to leave financial, having kids with the person, Mm -hmm. feeling afraid, being threatened, and often 
these abusers will wait until you're in a position where it will be hard to leave before the abuse becomes physical, that you are pregnant, that you're living together, that you're financially dependent on them, or you've quit your job or different realities that come from being in a relationship with coercive control, which doesn't necessarily have to include violence. Um, Is one of the last things to come back um, trusting other men? I don't even mean just just you and me having a conversation or, or friends of friends or, or seeing other friends, spouses or boyfriends. Is that one of the last things or, or can you, is that, is that just part of the whole huge leap no, I was very fortunate, first of all, in having such a big support system, a lot of it filled with men who are amazing allies. And I, you know, the segment of the sports media population that I know and I'm friends with, a lot of which are male, were incredibly supportive and wonderful. Um, and I don't see this as a male or female issue. Mm-hmm. There are more victims of conjugal of incident partner violence that are female, more of the perpetrators are men. But you know, these things happen on a spectrum and there are men who are being abused as well. Members of the LGBTQ plus community face much higher rates of intimate partner violence. And um, the biggest allies that I've had were men. I had my brother moved in when this all happened to help keep me safe. And on the nights where he had to work, because he's also a radio guy, um, my ex-boyfriends were nice enough that they would come over and, you know, sleep on the couch and one, you know, my male friends held poker games at my house so that there were often 10 men in my house sitting around a poker table with my kid, which it was, you know, I could go to bed early and not be as stressed out. And they stayed until the wee hours of the morning. So there are allies of all genders. So that it has not caused me not to trust men or not to trust people in general. It sort of feels as though I was hit by lightning. Amy Kaufman is our guest uh, joining us on Toronto today. Uh, she was married to Jonah Carey, uh, baseball journalist and, and broadcaster. The morning of the sentencing also had to be another stressful morning. And at the same time, um, I remember watching the case from afar, knowing what I knew about it, reading what I could read about it. And um, and I, I worry sometimes because I think people roll their eyes, Amy, and you and I were talking about this too and say, it's Canada. Uh, oftentimes, we just we just don't do what we should. We, we need to be more pro victim as opposed to, well, we can listen to this person and why did he or she do what they did? And can we rehabilitate this person? But the sentence is the sentence in a lot of countries. He gets 21 months in prison, but the the, the forecast seemed to be a lot less. Walk me through that day and and just having some relief that this wasn't four months, six months, um, two months with probate. Like, many women know what I'm talking about and it, it, uh, it, it, it scares the bejabbers out of them to think about it. Um, but 21 months was, was more than people thought he would get. Yeah. Court is often uh, a really re-traumatizing process for survivors, um, of any sort of trauma. You don't really expect to be seen or heard. Um, I was warned many times in advance that like he's a educated white male and chances are he's not going to get any time. I had prepared myself for that. Um, it was important for me to keep in mind that it was the crown versus Joan and Carrie and not Amy Kaufman versus Joan and Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, this didn't change how, you know, my being able to keep my kids safe or anything. It's very nice that he's away and I can sleep well, um, and things like that. But I didn't, I didn't expect that. I'm very lucky again, the morning of, I had a lot of friends who came over and brought breakfast and we watched this sort of expecting the worst. 
the judge's words meant just as much as the sentence, his understanding of it, his explaining course of control, which is not recognized throughout Canada as a form of abuse by the law and um, his understanding the pattern and understanding that those 14 letters of recommendation were not in fact a sign of anything other than Jonah's duplicity, uh, which is the case for most abusers. Amy Kaufman has uh, been spending some time with us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. If you know someone who is being abused or you suspect someone is uh, email info at womenaware.ca. Amy does work for that organization. And uh, that's a great, great place to start. Someone will respond and get back to you. You, the last thing you uh, you're a, a baseball nut and that hasn't changed. Did you wonder if it would? I'm really curious about that. Whether is, is it been, have, have the last three years been, easy to watch the sport every day, easy to think about um, the, the culture, because the culture probably reminds you of, of harder times at, 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 on occasion. It, it, does it? It's sort of funny because while I was with Jonah, I stopped watching baseball entirely. Um, okay. He actually didn't watch much baseball. He, he checked scores and wrote his articles from there. Um, and there was basketball playing, but there was certainly never baseball playing in the house. And as a lifelong baseball fan, um, and that's something that I share with my brother, I definitely have gotten back to it. And again, the baseball community and the old Expos alum uh, were so incredibly supportive. And to you know, wake up the day after this nightmare and have Alice Valentine calling you to make sure you're okay and to make sure your kid's okay and offering his support and offering a place to stay if ever you go to Texas um, is not something that the average person has. No, and, uh, and it meant a lot. And no, I refuse to let uh, my ex-husband ruin baseball for me. He he doesn't get to have that power. He didn't get to ruin my life. He doesn't get to ruin baseball. He, you know. That's awesome to hear. And and I, I would love for a team someday, I don't know, to return to Montreal and you and your kid can be two of the first people through the turnstiles because... You were probably really, really young when they left. <laughs> so. I, well, I, you know, I was a teenager. I still got to experience quite a lot of Montreal baseball as compared to, you know, kids nowadays who don't realize there was ever baseball here. I really hope it happens. <laughs> I really hope it I, I've been to Olympic Stadium, but I think the last time I was there was maybe 1994, 90, not, not 94, uh, 90, 93, even before the strike year when they did so well. And I'm like... Yeah, that that's the first. Obviously, it's the most obvious thing I can say during our chat is that's the first thing that needs to get fixed for yeah, it to I happen. Say, I hope it doesn't happen at the Big O. Uh, yeah, but '93 was a great year to come to Montreal and watch some baseball. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, I know we're going to hear from members of our audience uh, that uh, that probably reach out to you on uh, on Twitter. That will certainly uh, talk about this and they'll talk about it with their friends and. Uh, at, uh, clearly, obviously, I, I couldn't have the con conversation without you. I did the morning of the sentencing. It might have even the morning after commenting on the judge and some of what he said. But um, but you made the time for me. And I really, really can't thank you enough for that, Amy. Thanks uh, again for it. I really appreciate you holding space to have this conversation. It's a really important one. It's a really important one to have. And I hope that anyone who has some questions or would like some help will reach out. Proud to call her a new friend, Amy Kaufman. That's true bravery. That's heroism. Uh, if you are interested in speaking to somebody about domestic violence, if you are suffering from it, if you know someone who is or think someone is, it's all it takes is a conversation. Email info at womenaware.ca. 
what could the province have done differently during the Freedom Convoy? I think that's a really we're laying this all at the doorstep of the federal government and they have their responsibilities. Um, You saw earlier this week. Prime Minister Trudeau announces an investigation into the Freedom Convoy. I get the cynicism. They basically investigated themselves for SNC-Lavalin, investigated themselves for uh, the wheat, you know, the wheat uh, charity. So um, there's a lot of people wondering if anything's going to come of this. But what about the city of Ottawa and what about the province? There's responsibility there uh, as well. Our next guest held both those governments uh, to account. He's an Ottawa resident. He was on a couple different times during that entire uh, four-week run, for lack of a better term, uh, in Ottawa. Tim Abray joins us on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on again. At some point, um, you'll be on with us, and we won't be talking about a pending occupation in your city or a current occupation uh, in your city. Um, I've seen your tweets like this is, is this the same level of of rattling that you felt before it even gets started uh, heading into this weekend, Tim? I I think it's similar, Greg. I think that people are just wary. And I think they're justifiably wary. Uh, I I think I've said it before. I said it the last time I was on. Mm -hmm. Ottawa is no stranger to protests. I mean, I think the count since the the convoy uh, broke up, the count from Ottawa police since then is like we've had 100 demonstrations in the city since then. Um, So it isn't about the demonstrations themselves. It's about the nature of these particular ones. And I think that it definitely has everybody on edge. We're concerned about the plan. Uh, once again, the city and the police have, uh, have issued a plan that seems to not really do much to protect downtown residents. And I think that it's just that people are very uncertain about what the objective of this is, considering that most uh, most restrictions, public health gui- guides have been dropped since uh, the last time we had this protest. So I'm not sure that anybody is comfortable about what this is about or how it's going to evolve. But I think there's at least a little bit of hope, but there's definitely a lot of a lot of concern and fear. So this is called Rolling Thunder Ottawa, and the expectation is between 500 and 1,000 motorcycles arrive. They say uh, that many are, uh, are veterans, often recent veterans of, of, let's say, you know, the Afghanistan uh, war, and they want to lay a wreath and hold a minute of silence at the National War Memorial. Now, they, there's areas still in Ottawa, Tim, right, that are blocked off that got blocked off in the latter stages of the four weeks in February that haven't still been reopened, right? Yeah, it's just that stretch right in front of Parliament Hill that is still closed. Uh, the rest of downtown is is open once again. But my understanding is that police are going to have this blocked off. Uh, a large part of the, the, the office building part of downtown, not the part that I live in, which is only a short, you know, five to ten minute walk from that area, so uh, they've got one small stretch of street blocked off to traffic, and they're going to close off a, another few streets uh, around Parliament Hill, but the rest of the downtown is going to be wide open. So uh, it's not going to be much of a deterrent. I know you've been um, you've been critical uh, of the mayor. I, I have as well. In a way, it's shocking that the four weeks happened the way they did. And to be honest, to be honest, it's shocking that things have settled for the mayor. I know he's departing. I know he's not running again. But I saw his quote last week, which was almost more a, a Clint Eastwood-esque, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And I'm like, I didn't consider him nice during the four weeks. I considered him incompetent and 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 apathetic for the first three weeks and a few days of the protest. You couldn't find him with a compass uh, to do media appearances. And then once the cops started moving in those last two days after the Federal Emergency Measures Act, you couldn't shut him up. I, I How is he perceived among Ottawa residents right now? 
Yeah, there's a strong split. I think Ottawa is very rapidly moving on because they're aware that he is not going to continue and the contest for the mayor's uh, chair is well underway. So I think that you've got a solid split in Ottawa. He is very popular out in the suburbs of this city, but not at all popular in the downtown. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, uh, that's an important distinction. It's, it's the downtown that deals with this kind of stuff on a regular basis. Ottawa is an extremely large city from a yeah. footprint perspective. And so there's, there's a lot of people who get quite insulated from this. They can be, you know, a half hour drive away and still technically be in the city. And so it's, it's quite a divide. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of animosity towards the way the mayor dealt with the first round of this. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism about his tough guy talk. As you say, he tends to emerge once the dust has cleared. Um, and it will be interesting to see uh, to see what happens next. But I don't think people are waiting on him this time. Um, there's a lot of leadership at the citizen level. There's a lot of leadership from various councillors yeah. uh, in the city. Uh, and we'll see if Ottawa police uh, step up this time and ensure that the conditions don't develop to, to have another... Uh, another debacle in the downtown. Tim Abrae is our guest, an Ottawa resident uh, joining us on Toronto today. Where is that level of trust between uh, the population and uh, Ottawa police services now? Yeah, it's, it's super low, Greg. Okay. It's, it's super low. <laughs> I'll put you down as undecided for that one then. Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is. Um, there's been a complete shakeup at the, the police services board. They've been deeply inaccessible since uh, the January, February debacle. Um, it's been very difficult to get their attention and get conversation going about what needs to change. This is a this is a police force that's incredibly resistant to change, um, and I guess it's it's the old classic: the proof is going to be in what they do. Uh, and so we're hopeful that they're not going to let this get out of hand. But it's not encouraging that the only scheduled guest speaker for this is uh, you know is a guy who is well known for his. Uh, his racist anti-Holocaust views. That's not exactly a good sign. Um, the only scheduled speaker on Saturday is, is Chris Scott. Yeah, that's a big uh, problem. That, that, yeah, That tells us things about what it is precisely that this is going to be all about. And I wonder if this time around, like when I think about it from the rear view mirror perspective, um, clearly not everybody that showed up in Ottawa and stayed there and held their ground was, you know, trying to topple the Trudeau government, was a, you know, a, a born and bred racist. But enough were and enough were that it, it that, that it was problematic. And that group, uh, I don't need to tell you, Tim, that group and, and even people protesting mandates, which is con- that's a, that's a conversation. That's a debate. But they overstayed their welcome and they got really emboldened after that first weekend by nobody doing anything in terms of enforcement or uh or, or any form of, of control. And, and they puff their chest out a little bit. If, you, if you're allowed to go anywhere in the schoolyard and shove around anybody you want, no teacher does anything, you're going to keep taking everybody's lunch money. And that's what happened week after week in Ottawa. Well, and not only not do anything, but show up and take selfies with the people with the pocket change in their hands. I mean, this is, yeah. this is, this is where we're at. And unfortunately, that's very clear that that's what this weekend's going to be about too. I mean, we're chucking around the word freedom uh, in a way that, you know, I'm glad as someone who studies this stuff, I'm I'm glad that we're having the conversation about what freedom is and how civil society works. But I don't think we've gotten very far in the discussion. We're kind mm-hmm. of stuck on chapter one. And I think uh, it's it's time that we had a more nuanced, more complicated, more adult discussion about what that mm-hmm. word means 
and what's involved when you live with other people, because the kind of stuff that is at the center of these particular rallies is so elementary and really misunderstands the purpose of society, the purpose of mm. government, the purpose of, of what we do collectively uh, together. We are not just a collection of individuals doing our own thing. There's a, a lot of complex dynamics involved, and freedom is a very complicated concept right at the center of it. And we're throwing it around as a slogan to get people riled up uh, and freaked out that their government somehow is not supporting them in their own personal freedom. And I think, I think it's time we had a serious discussion about that stuff. And I know yeah. that people, there are citizens in Ottawa trying to do that, but we're not getting a heck of a lot of support from our elected officials of having that serious at all. Yeah, and, and you didn't at any level of government, as uh, as I mentioned when we started our conversation. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I wish you well with it. Maybe we can follow up next week, but I, I hope it goes uh, peacefully. I hope it goes well. I hope it goes without incident. Tim, thanks very much for uh, for lending your perspective. I appreciate our conversation. Anytime, Greg. All right. This is great news. Really awesome stuff. Our next guest, you know, we I don't know that we broke this news. Uh, the news was probably broken to her, but a recent event at the Royal Ontario Museum where I spent uh, many a year uh, looking for toddlers. Never had a, actually had to ask where one was, but, you, you know, it's a little bit of hide and seek sometimes when you take your kids to the ROM on a Saturday afternoon. But our own global news is Susan Hay appointed to the Order of Ontario for all her work, for all her difference making, for all her advocacy. And she joins us right now. We want to celebrate this with. By the way, you can get lost at the ROM even as an adult, let alone when your kids are running around. It's, a, it's, it's got some complexities to it. It's a bit of a maze sometimes. I got lost on Monday when I went to <laughs> going to the washroom. That's, I don't know that anyone's ever not gotten an order of Ontario because they've gotten lost in the washroom. But, you know, there, there's a first for everything. You know, it's great to be innovative and, and be, a, be a groundbreaker, right? So true, but what a great place. It is. It's great. It is. It's right now, yeah. I love our. I love arguing with people. Uh, period, and I love arguing with people about what I what they like better, the ROM or the Ontario Science Center. There's probably no bad answer. I'm a little more of a ROM person for a Saturday when I had, <laughs> you know, maybe in 20 years I'll have grandkids there and I'll be like, where did they go? This is so. Fr I can't walk like I used to. I can't chase them down. This is so frustrating. Exactly. Well, what exactly. what a moment though. You, you had to wake up really excited. That's that's not an everyday occurrence to receive the Order of Ontario. I think I'm still processing the events of the day. I mean, it was a, it, we waited 14 months for this to, to take place because of the pandemic. It got canceled once. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a bit surreal. You know, you're in the company of extraordinary people and you sit there as you wait to get up for your appointment and your, your career really passes, flashes, you know, before your eyes, not to mention your life, but it was, it was a spectacular day. Well, you came to Global in 1989, um, and the, the industry's changed so much. We're in a pre-internet era. We're in an interview, obviously, where um, you know we know the challenges that are there in in conventional broadcasting, television, radio right now. But take me back to those first couple of years at Global and and what you experienced, and and some of the people that you probably walked in the newsroom and you're like, "There's that person. There's this person." That must have been again remarkable. <laughs> like 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 there was a little bit of a iconic thing being on TV in the 80s and 90s. We, I'd sit there and watch. It was great. You know, it still is great. But those times, I think we were freer. Um, we did a lot more, even though we didn't have all the tools that we have today, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I remember driving up there for the first time and I thought, for an interview, actually, and I thought, I'm going to work here. The moment I walked through the door, because I came from CBC, 
CBLT at that point. Mm -hmm. And it was so different. I mean, I thought, you know, CBC was great and I wasn't going to find anything better. And it was such family. I mean, that's what we are at Global. I'm sure you feel that too, mm-hmm. even though we don't work out of the same building. The people they hire just all seem to mesh. And, you know, all, times weren't always great, but um, there's been more amazing years than not. And that's just life. And that's just anybody's career. But yeah, there were some incredible people, but the building was electric. And I mean, at that time I was doing weather, but I was also going out a lot remotely. Uh, covering the province and stories. Not like I am now. It was different. It was more live. But it was fun. And we still laugh about those days. I bet. I bet. Uh, Susan Hayes joining us on uh, 640 Toronto, uh, given the Order of Ontario. Uh, and you, uh, again, you, you're, you, know, you, you decided also advocacy was really important to you. You just didn't want to come in and, and do the job. As important as some of the stories were, you said, I can do things off camera. I can do things offset. And I think we all look for that. We all want, you know, we all want to leave something behind and, and do that proverbial making a difference in people's lives. How, how easy was that to do and, and balance with everything else that you were, uh, you were doing at the time? Yeah, balance was key. I think I've always done it, but didn't think about it. You know, I think I started at 18 giving back, but, you know, my parents were very giving. And so you have this foundation of love and support and um, wanting to create change, but not even knowing it. You know, that word create change and make an impact wasn't huge um, when I was coming up, you know, the Mm -hmm. ladder. And I just did it because, I don't know, I felt good. I spent time... Um, on weekends with uh, children with, you know, different physical and and developmental challenges because I wanted to. Um, But I was also single, too. So you you could fit in a lot more. But it just became part of my life. And then it just spun into uh, a segment that gave back in that way and gave people a platform, you know, um, to tell their stories and to have a voice. It's amazing how careers go because nobody ever real. I don't feel like people end up with a master plan. They just put in the time and, and life becomes, you know, you you become, uh, you know, a spouse and then a parent and life becomes very micro, not macro. Like I can remember stuff from 1989 and I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago or the conversation I had with my wife. Exactly. So so you just you just do what you do. I, I had um Michael Timmons from uh, the great band Cowboy Junkies on yesterday. And I said, you guys have made 16 albums like nobody sets out and says our goal is to make 16 albums or or be able to play Massey Hall 30 years after we start. But like so when people say you've done this 30 years, you're like, have I like you just do it. You just do it and keep going. And if it's going well, you keep doing it. You love it. This is what I like coming on your show because you totally get it. You say the most amazing things because that's true. I think anybody that says I want this or that, I don't know if it's going to happen. You know, you're too focused. I think if you just let everything fall into place and, and you love what, what you do every day for the most part, we all have, you know, days where it's not the greatest um, simply because of just life gets in the way. But I never mm. thought in my life or never achieved to get the Order of Ontario. I mean, it's mm. surreal to me that word is overused, but it made sense to me at the ceremony on, on Monday, for sure. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad bought me a, po- I got a poster, I think, when I was 14 of like a, um, a Ferrari, something stupid a teenage boy would like on his wall, a Ferrari. My, mo- my mom probably preferred that to a girl in a bikini. So she's like, fine, give him the Ferrari. We don't want anything else up on the wall. He's got sisters. But my dad's like, work really hard and you could achieve this. And I'm like, 
uh, you know, I don't think I ever ended up with, but those are the things, right? I, I, I bought a, I bought a Hyundai. Like that's not a, <laughs> what, what am I, Alan Carter or Donna Friesen? I'm not, I'm not either of those people. I can't afford a Ferrari, but like you said, you just, you, you map it out and, and, uh, and you just, you just do what you do and you love it. And that's so great that your dad said that too. <laughs> <laughs> not about the Ferrari, but it's, um, it, it's so, my parents would always say that do what you love. Mm-hmm. They never said you need to be this, you need to be that. You had to get an education. You're not, you know, you're not going to not have an education, but whatever you do, do mm-hmm. what you love and, and be proud of it. Uh, Susan Hay joining us on Toronto Today. Congratulations on the award. When, when, when some of the crazy, crazy stuff settles down, and I think we're getting there, please come in studio with our show. We can talk about big Thanks stories, your career, all that stuff, and we can meet in person and all that stuff. But, but we're all so proud of you. Thanks for making time for our oh, show, as always. You made my day. Thank you. I love coming on your show, so keep in touch. Awesome. We will do just that. Susan Hay uh, joining us on uh, Toronto Today. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today for Thursday on the 28th of April. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll know a lot more about Raptors Sixers, whether there's a Game 7 or not. Provincial budget coming down, and we'll get you set for your weekend. The last one of the month of April. We'll get there uh, together. Uh, Of course, you can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app live tomorrow morning and at 640toronto.com.